0: I have to apologize if the the voice is a little rough. We had a tremendous win on the on our with our lacrosse team this week, and I I lost just a little bit of the voice. What a blessing to be here this morning. Uh, we were running out of chairs in uh, in our study session. There was faces I haven't seen in a while from, and and it just was an amazing teaching session this morning, as I'm sure we'll experience here. Today, Jesus anointed at Bethany. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at a table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves (laughs) indignant. indignantly, excuse me, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing for me. For you always have the poor with you and whenever you want, you can do good for them but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. This is God's word. All glory and praise be to God.
1: For those of you who are keeping count, and I could be off by one or two because I was driving and looking at my cell phone and counting, which is not good to do, but we are in our 76th week in the book of Mark. That's where we're at. We look to finish Mark. I think we calculated, what, October? so when we get through Mark. So thank you for being with us uh, for this uh, extensive, extensive Bible study. Uh, a couple things about this passage. Even before we get into the message, I have to say I was working. Uh, when I do my study, I uh, the way the way I handle it and the way I get the uh, to do my preliminary work before I begin writing a manuscript, a manuscript that ends up online. Please be note, please note that most of the time I don't proof it after I write it. I don't proof that manuscript uh, generally due to a time. A time period issue, uh, and a lot of times what you hear here is not word for word out of the manuscript. Uh, I don't; uh, my, my notes are up here, but they aren't my manuscript that I wrote. Uh, these are just some, some points that I want to get to. Uh, I have to say that this passage—I wasn't expecting it. I've been working on it during the week, as John and I both do. You know, you take take periods of time where you're looking through the verses and you're 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 studying them, you're examining them, but you're not preparing the message. Uh, you're just uh, working through what the passages mean, what the words mean, where the verbs are at, what, what is what is trying to be communicated. And what I wasn't expecting uh, is I was literally broken by these passages this week. I didn't expect it out of these. I just was just stunned by what is being said here. Uh, I couldn't see it coming. And at, at one point in time, I'm literally typing. I couldn't, you know, my eyes were blurry, just just, just typing the words out for the manuscript. It was just such a such a powerful passage that I just didn't see it coming that way uh, when I started to consider what is being written here. So hopefully, hopefully uh, the Spirit will give me the ability to uh, convey that, convey that study to you today. So last week, We had talked about the Passover and the Unleavened Bread. It was two days away. The priests and the scribes, they were plotting to kill Jesus. It wasn't a new plot. They had, since beforehand, had many times noted that they wanted to get rid of this guy, that they wanted to be done with him. This problem child, you should say, that was there. They didn't want to do it during the feast. They wanted to do it under the cover of secrecy. So that the crowd would not be inflamed, they, we know that there was probably a number of Galileans that were there. Uh, Jesus was from Galilee. They were afraid that were they to kill him during this period of time, they might uh, they might have a, a even to the point of a perhaps a revolution on their hands. They wanted to hold on to their power that was bestowed upon them by the Roman government. They did not want to upset Rome. They didn't want to have the Roman troops come in. Uh, things such as that this story this week where we left off last week is entirely of a different flavor and we certainly need to consider why that is and where it's located at I believe there's only uh, three sections of scripture that is listed for the passage today we are going to be of course here in mark chapter 3 uh, mark chapter 14 verses 3 through 9. We will look also at Matthew chapter 26, verses 6 through 13, and John chapter 12, verses 1 and 8. All three of the accounts of this particular event. And we need to take our time when we look at them, we need to take our time when we examine them to understand what is being said and why it's being said. And sometimes in the case of where it's being said. It is a fascinating passage that gives us a little view into even the mealtime in the Middle Eastern setting that we find here. And it won't take us much time out of verse 3, and then we're going to be jumping to the other ones to look at what they say. So we'll just uh, dive in here. It says in verse 3 of chapter 14, While he was in Bethany, at the home of Simon the leper, Now let's stop right there. If Simon still was suffering from leprosy, they wouldn't be able to be there because Simon would be unclean. We can also say that Simon is now no longer suffering from leprosy. There was certainly no cure for leprosy then. So we can assume that the only person that cured leprosy during that time was Jesus, that Simon was the recipient of a miracle from Christ himself. This is the home that they're at. This is in Bethany. We note from the previous stories when we started way back in, what was it, 13, that when they they would typically go into the city during the day and they stayed in Bethany in the evenings. And this is where they were staying at. Simon the leper. Look at Matthew chapter. 26 and verse 6. It says, Now when Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper. Now when Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper. And here's the elephant in the room. It's John chapter 12 verse 1. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus has raised from the dead. There's the problem with this passage. We, last week, when we studied it, it was two days from the Passover in the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. Matthew agrees with the similar thing, yet John here says, It is six days from the Passover, a seemingly insurmountable time issue that we're dealing with. I can attest to you that scholars, many of them, are all over the place with this. I can also tell you that in scholarship, in the academy today, that the only way you get published is by coming up with something new. So you have to process new ideas to get somebody to publish something for you. I can also tell you that it's not a novel idea what I'm going to put before you, and and quite frankly, it's pretty easy to understand when we understand how Greek-speaking Hebrews write. You see, in the Hebrew language, if you were to look back in the Old Testament, Linear storytelling is not necessarily the hallmark of their tradition. We, as Western people, as in the United States, we read stories that go A, B, C, D, E, F, and G all the way to the letter Z at the end. We start here and the plot builds and it builds and it builds and it builds to the final conclusion at the end. That's the way we're used to reading stories. All we need to do is look at Dr. Seuss. We see the same thing. But in Hebrew writing, that isn't the important part of the story. A lot of times, if you were to read your stories in the Old Testament, I'm certain for certain members of the congregation here who have done some extensive reading in the Old Testament, they would find that they get to the end of the story and they're like, this makes, that's a weird place to end this story at. That's not where I thought it would end at. I sometimes go back to describe this. Uh, you know, A good illustration would be the story of Gideon. If you were to read the story of Gideon, you would see that he starts out as nothing. He is blessed by God, falls away, and then ends as nothing. That's because a lot of Hebrew writing, the point is in the middle. In the story of Gideon, it's how he listened to God and how he He was obedient to God. And so we see some of this in Mark. We see some of the reason why it's written the way it is, and why these seeming time frame issues are not really an issue at all. You see, Mark is reading to tell us about the Son of God. Mark is, is writing to tell us about who he is and what he has done. Matthew is doing something in a similar fashion and John is writing legal Jewish testimony. The witness that we see in Mark points to something different and it's not in opposition to what John is writing. If we look at Mark again in that first verse 3 Notice how this, uh, this, this section, what we refer to as a pericope, it says, while he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper. It doesn't say when, time-wise, he was at the home of Simon the leper. It says when he was at Bethany at the time of Simon the leper. And what you find here is that Mark is giving us a very specific look at what's going on here. Think about where it's sandwiched at. What we just read last week was the plot to kill Jesus, the killers of Jesus. Now we're going to read about Jesus' friends, and then next week, John Weathersby is going to preach on Jesus' betrayer. Right here in Mark's narrative, he is telling us about the friends of Jesus. He is telling about the followers of Jesus who were with him. Mark is telling this story in a fashion that he's recalling how it was when they arrived in Bethany. It's like this. It, what we actually see here is a skillful narrative telling that gives us certain details that we need to know before he continues on with the betrayal of Jesus so we can understand the actions of those who are his friends who are there. It would be like me telling you about a cross-country trip that I took to the Grand Canyon. You know that I drove across country, and I'm telling you about the Grand Canyon. It's just a big hole in the ground. And then I might go off in a second, and I said, when we were in Wisconsin, we had these fries, these French fries, that had gravy on them. They were great. And then we went to Flagstaff, Arizona, and I met somebody there that liked fries with gravy on it. The point wasn't the linear storytelling. The point was that I met somebody in Flagstaff that also liked fries with gravy that I just had in Wisconsin when we were driving across the country. It wasn't meant to be linear in nature. It was meant to give you important details about the people that were involved. And that's what we see here in Mark's telling. He is not locating this event right after this discussion about two days of the Passover. He's taking us back to the time when Jesus came to Bethany before the triumphal entry into the city on Lamb Selection Day, before he upturned the table at Annas' bazaar in the temple, before he gave the teaching of the end times, before the Pharisees and the scribes were forming their final plot to kill him. Mark is importantly telling us about this event that occurred here in the home of Simon the leper. We get some important details that we'll go into in a second in John. But we'll continue in verse 3. While he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper and was reclining at the table. A low, mid-eastern table where they would, they would sit and sort of lay back at. Not the high tables, the chairs like we're used to. Or sometimes the uncomfortable high-top chairs that they force you to eat at at restaurants. When you get after a certain age, they hurt your back. You don't have a proper place to put your feet at. You know, it's very uncomfortable, but not like that. But reclining there, reclining at the at at the table and look at Mark or excuse me, look at John, what he says. Therefore, six days before the Passover came to Bethany, came to Bethany where Lazarus was whom Jesus has raised from the dead. So they made him supper there. We're going to do a little back and forth, so just bear with me on this. In Mark 14.3, after reclining at the table, it says, There came a woman with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume, of pure nard. John tells us, in verse 2 it says, So they made him supper there, and Martha was serving. Now who is Martha? Martha. Martha is Lazarus' sister. She has another sister too, and her name is Mary. And Lazarus is there, and Martha is there. We're going to find out that Mary is there too. In just a moment, in John chapter 12, it says there, Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. We certainly can't miss that. I mean, I would want to sit with the man who raised me from the dead after I'd been there for four days. Jesus probably invited him to sit right next to him. They were friends after all. He lived in Bethany. Everybody's come into the area for this massive Jewish festival, the Passover. It's probably a scene of celebration that they're having here at this point in time recounting tales from the story of Jesus' ministry out there. He's come back into town. He's with us. And I'm sure Jesus was great to be around. You shouldn't, certainly couldn't fault Him for His teaching. And they're sitting there at the table. Lazarus sitting beside Him. Martha is serving the supper. Mark tells us a slightly different version. A slightly different details. Remember, Mark is drawing on to a certain part here. It says there, and while he was reclining at the table in verse 3, it says, there came a woman with an alabaster vial. John tells us in verse 3, it says, Mary then took a pound of very, very costly perfume. Mark leaves the woman unknown. John places it as Mary. Now, you could picture this scene, I think, when Jesus is reclining at the table. The other disciples are there. Probably Simon the leper, too, has also been healed. We probably have two people that are direct recipients of Jesus' healing ministry sitting at the table. They're all right there. The disciples, Lazarus, Martha's serving. We could picture what's going on there. Where is Mary? Again, this situation with Mary. We remember Mary from way back. Martha was serving and Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to his teaching. Martha scolded Mary, but Jesus said that she's doing the right thing. We're going to run into a similar situation here. You can see Martha just running back and forth with perhaps the, uh, perhaps the, 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 the utensils or the plates or the food for the meal. And where is Mary at? Why is she not helping me? This celebratory scene, you know, I want to get this stuff served so I can hear what Jesus says too, but where is Mary? And here she comes. John tells us that it's a, it's a pound of this, this perfume, this nard. Mark tells us that it was an alabaster vial, a very costly perfume of pure nard. This was very costly. We're gonna find out that it costs approximately a year's wages for a common, a common worker at this time. Nard, it comes from the Spike Nard bush in in India, which is part of the reason why it's expensive. It is imported in. It's an amber liquid that is contained in this alabaster vial, this alabaster jar that is either white or yellow in color. Super costly. This story is not to be confused with Luke chapter 7 where a woman with very costly perfume of the similar type a woman of ill repute worships at Jesus' feet. This is entirely different. This Mary it says there in Mark it says while he was in Bethany, oh, yeah, while he was in Bethany at the home assigned the leper reclining at the table there came a woman with an alabaster vial a very costly perfume of pure nard. And she broke the vial and poured it over his head. Martha looking for Mary, wanting the help, and here comes Mary with with this perfumed oil, is what it's called, a perfumed oil of this pure nard, breaks it and pours it over Jesus' head while he's reclining at the table. John tells us that it was a pound in weight very costly perfume of pure nard, anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped His feet with her hair. One can't miss what is happening here. And this is where it started to really affect me when I was doing the study. This is a scene of unrestrained worship of Jesus. This is a scene of pure worship of who Jesus is by Mary. She is doing the only thing that she knows what to do in that face of who Jesus is and what is going to be happening. She probably can't see or understand the immensity of what is going to go, go on this week. She probably can't even envision what the cross is going to be like. What the scourging is going to be like. She can't envision the empty tomb. And we know what happens there with her. But she comes in this room with this this, wow, this very expensive thing, something that is, how do I want to put this? It isn't like me writing out a check for tithing. This is, I can afford that. Just throw it in in, 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 in the offering plate when it goes by. This is something completely different. This is giving of all, that the the most valuable thing that she has or that's available to her, that she is giving it all at that moment in the face of who Jesus is. She comes into the room with this thing and immediately breaks the neck. Generally, these jars would have a long neck on it. Breaks the neck off of it. Pours it over his head. It goes onto her feet. And she proceeds to get on her knees and she's wiping his feet with this pure nard, with this, with this perfumed oil, with her feet, with, with her hair on his feet, this is a scene of absolute worship of Jesus. This is, absolute, this is an absolute scene of worshiping the one who is truly God and truly man. It is the only thing that she can do at this point in time. When she goes in there, it is a shocking scene, and it's shocking to those around her. I love what it says in John chapter twelve, verse three. It says, "When she anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair." So we get we're looking at two different two different descriptions about what happened from the witness. Right? We have it poured onto his head. We have it onto his feet wiping it with her hair when I looked this up it said that this liquid would 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 evaporate fairly quickly but the scent was unmistakable and it says in John chapter 12 verse 3 it says there' after the part where she's wiping his feet with her hair it says and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. perhaps even overwhelming in this house. There was so much of it. This unrestrained worship that she did, I couldn't help but think there's an image here of the God-man, of Jesus, being covered with this perfumed oil in this fragrance. All I could picture was the incense that the priest would bring into the Holy of Holies. The incense that would burn fragrantly which was to represent the prayers of the people that went up before God. I couldn't help but think about this imagery that is here, that, they, that John so, so poignantly points us to about the fragrance filling the room. This fragrance of the worship that, Jesus, that Mary has done in front of everyone, unstopped. Something that she is doing that they have a very difficult time dealing with. Sixteen people that we know of that are in this house, in this room. Mary, Mary, the one who sat to listen at Jesus' feet instead of doing the work of the house previously. Mary, the one who comes into the room with the most expensive thing that she has. And she breaks it and pours it over his head and his feet and gets down on her knees to wipe his feet with her hair. This worship that is going on there. She seems to get it more than anybody else in this room does. She seems to understand what is going to happen. Not only what is going to happen, but who Jesus is. This is a lavish act that she has done. Imperfect, yes. But a lavish act, the only thing that she could do for Jesus at this point in time. Perhaps knowing that her time with Jesus would be limited if she would see him again after this night. Understanding that his Work would be great this week to the degree that she could understand the words that Jesus had said. We know that they are hearing what Jesus has told them what will happen. They're hearing it through clouded, clouded, and they're hearing it through, through stopped up ears and seeing it through clouded eyes, not seeing everything that is going to happen. Even though Jesus has told them what they need to know, she is anointing him we have the idea of anointing as the body for burial, which Jesus will talk about soon. But also there's the anointing of the person that is ascending to a higher position also. is happening here. Jesus being anointed there for the grave. Jesus being anointed prior to suffering the wrath of His Father for the hatred of sin, Jesus being anointed before He becomes the curse for us, for all who believe. Mary doing the only appropriate thing that could be done at this point in time. Naturally, those around her don't seem to get it. Verse 4 of Mark chapter 14 says, But some were indignantly remarking to one another, Why has this perfume been wasted? Murmuring amongst themselves, starting to condemn Mary for what she has done. They understand the value of this item. They understand how extravagant it was. The oil of the perfume still on the floor. The scent of the perfume engulfing the room. And it can never be put back in that jar, in that vial. So much wasted in their eyes. The material goods on the floor, the broken jar in her hand, and they miss the importance of what is being done. This will be Jesus' last Passover, this will be his last feast of the unleavened bread. And he will celebrate that Passover in a far different manner than they would. And he would do it for them. For whatever Mary perceives, and we don't know what she was thinking, but her actions speak to that inward change that she had, or that inward understanding that she had of who Jesus was. She was not held back by social norms. She was not held back by what she thought people would think of her. She was not held back from worshiping her God. She was unrestrained in what she did. She did all that she could do. For him. The murmuring amongst them, and you've seen people murmur about things when they're looking out there and looking at some event that has occurred, talking amongst themselves. You can hear little snippets of words. She could hear what they were saying, I'm certain. Jesus certainly could hear what they're saying, along with perceiving the evil that was in their hearts about what had just happened. At this reclined table, the perfume, the the wafting up into the room and throughout the whole house, it could not be missed. And there they are in chapter, excuse me, in verse 5 of chapter 14, continuing with what they say, for this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. Now, notice that the perfume wasn't sold beforehand. Notice that the poor wasn't their concern. Before this incident happened, we might notice importantly, and John gives us a little bit more detail. He says in chapter four of verse uh, chapter, excuse me, verse four of chapter 12, it says, But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was intending to betray him, why was this perfume not sold? For 300 denarii and given to the poor people. Judas, probably the instigator of what is occurring here, the instigator of the scolding that is occurring to Mary, because we know from John that the only reason why he's saying it in verse 6 is not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. Interestingly enough, the Greek word we get uh, that is used there is where we get the kleptomaniac from. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. So this indignation that has risen, probably because of Judas's uh, probably because of uh, Judas's foment, uh, fomenting the issue, right? Pointing out, you know, starting the crowd off in the murmuring and the indignation. Judas doing this and bringing this to a head. It says, it says, this might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. And then it says, and they were scolding her. I hear scolding, I don't think much, but this in the Greek is horrible. This is very vehement anger that they're expressing towards Mary. Here Mary has come in and run in and broken this jar in an act of devotion and worship to her God and and anointed Him, right? And then they're scolding her for what she has done. All they see is the liquid, what is left of it on the floor in the broken vial and they think what might have been or what we could have done with this. What she's seeing is pure worship of the only Savior that she has. Her actions betray what's in her heart. Their actions betray what's in their heart. They are thinking materially. She is thinking spiritually. Wow, I'm a good Baptist because I just kind of littered that out. I didn't even have a plan. If I could only get a third one, then I would be a true Baptist. This is... You, you, I, we can't comprehend what this is. Mary. I can't comprehend of a year's wages burned on the ground in front of Jesus so that it might be a, a, a pleasing scent to the Lord. Imagine taking a year of your wages, putting it, in a, putting it in a briefcase or whatnot, opening it up, putting lighter fluid on it, and throwing a match on it. A year's wages. Gone. An act of pure devotion that she has done. The materialism that is shown by them the men that are there. Mary, who has sat and had been taught at Jesus' feet, Mary, who Martha was probably looking for and to help with serving, has rushed into the room and broken this jar doing the only thing that she could do and pouring it and anointing it onto Jesus' head. And at the moment, she is ready to be just about to be ground under the wheels of the anger of the disciples and the others who were there. She probably understands what she has done better than even her brother who has been raised from the dead. Verse 6. But Jesus said, let her alone. Even shortly, it says, leave her. Leave her be. Back away from her. Don't say another word about what has been done here. Why do you bother her, he says. Why? Why do you bother her over what she has done? She has done a good deed to me. She has done a good work for me. What you see as a waste, she has done, what she has done is good. This thing that she has demonstrated, in fact, is great. This action of worship that Mary has done is unlike we've seen before to him. Her inward knowledge of Jesus is reflected in her outward actions here. The others could not see that he was the lamb being led to the slaughter. That he was the lamb that was slain before the foundations of the earth. They could not perceive what she apparently perceived. Verse 7. He turns his back on him. Uh, This is not, Jesus is not anti-poor. But he says, for you always have the poor with you. I would almost add in this, well, I'll finish it here. You always have the poor with you and whenever you wish you can do good to them. You could have sold this perfume at any given time and done what you said should have been done. But in this instance, at this period of time, Jesus, remember, comes at a specific point in time, not at all times, at one time, in this time, in this era, for this thing that He is going to do, going to the cross, or propitiation, expiation of her sin, Right? He is there, and she, and He says, but you do not always have Me. they have the God-man in front of them. He will never be like he is in front of them again. When they see him after the resurrection, he is clearly a different person. They had a glimpse of it on the Mount of Transfiguration, three of them. But like this, fully God, fully man, in front of them. The praying Jesus, the one relying upon the Holy Spirit. You only have me for a short period of time and the days are getting shorter. The cross is looming in front of him. The shadow of the cross casts the whole way out to Bethany and beyond. It's there. He knows it. And somehow Mary knows something about it for what she has done. This good work, he says in verse 8. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for the burial. In the original language, it would say she has anticipated the anointing of my body for the burial. She has somehow had the idea that she would not be able to see Jesus after the violent death that he would suffer. The lamb that would be slain. It would say, I believe it's in John chapter 12, it says in verse 7, Therefore let her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Similar words were said when Mary sat at Jesus' feet listening to his teaching. That that this thing she she has done is so important. Don't take this away from her. By your murmuring and your misunderstanding, don't remove it from her. Let her have this moment that she is pure worship to me, the only God worthy of worship. In verse 9 it tells us, Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. Now a little... A little housekeeping with these verses. One could say to yourselves, why does Matthew, and I know we haven't, Matthew follows very almost identical to what Mark says. Why do Matthew and Mark not name Mary? And why does John name Mary? We only need to think a little bit about this. We need to think about how Matthew and Mark were written very early as Gospels. Peter obviously knew, this is a sermon, a teaching of Peter, what we find in Mark. Peter obviously knew who was there and who the woman was and who all attended. But they don't mention it. And John does. Well, Matthew and Mark are more than likely written and Mary is still alive. Mary is still walking around in that ancient mid-eastern land. Whereas John is writing very late his gospel and Mary is probably dead by then. One can only imagine that the issues that would occur for Mary had she been named so early in the gospel, in the gospels of Matthew and Mark, that people might have sought her out and created problems for her. Matthew and Mark, when they write their gospel, then keep her name a mystery except for those who were there John, after she's gone, you will remember this woman for forever. Wherever the Gospel is preached. You will remember this act of unrestrained, pure worship that she has done for Jesus. How she has done the only thing that she could do. That Mary has chosen that good part. Not something to be rebuked for. And that this act will be a memorial for her what she has done for Jesus. In fact, here we are 2,000 years removed and we are remembering what she has done. Perhaps we are a little shocked by the scene. Perhaps it's because we don't really understand what alabaster jars are or what an art is. But I would propose that it's probably something different than that. Perhaps we can't, understand what it's like to give pure, unadulterated, unrestrained worship to God, regardless of what other people think. I don't mean out-of-control worship, but I mean proper worship to God. We can imagine the perfume that is overwhelming the room, like the incense we can picture the indignation of the disciples. And perhaps we can even see ourselves at first in that. Why would you waste such a thing? Why didn't we do good works for these other people out here? But I think perhaps we can also understand the picture of love as Jesus looks upon Mary when she does this. She does, he doesn't stop her. She demonstrates the devotion to the worship of the only Savior that she has and the only Savior that we have. She demonstrates that devotion in the only hope that there is. I can tell you right now that every single person on this planet if the Lord continues to tarry, will die of their sin. That's as blunt as I can get. Their sin is going to cause their death. Oh, we might call it cancer, or we might call it old age and heart failure, but don't get me wrong, it's sin. God told us that's the reason why they're dying. Jesus is the only hope for that cause. Mary knows something about that. Perhaps we feel a little distant from this act of love and devotion to her Savior. Where do we land as individuals? Where do we land as a person? Do we actually come here to this church to worship God? Or do we come here to this church hopefully hear a good sermon, but just to consume the words, to ponder them, or do we actually come to worship our Savior, which is what we're commanded to do? Or are we just material consumers, like people that are worried about the perfume on the floor, instead of concerned with worship of the Savior that we're commanded to do? Are we worried about our repentance and our holiness? Are we worried about our goods in our pantry, in our closets? Are we fearful of men or are we rightly fearful of God? Because if you are fearful of God, you will not be fearful of men. Mary was with the living God, truly with the living God there, when all the others were just having dinner with Jesus. Mary was there in a sense of worship before Him, and they were just having a good time. Mary acted in the only way she knew how in the face of her Savior, whereas they missed the boat. She was fully joyful in knowing Him and being known by Him. She knew Him as other and as holy. As wholly different than her. We too should approach worship knowing this. We are on the other side of this equation that she's right in the beginning of. We're on the other side of the betrayal. We're beyond the kangaroo court. We're... Past the scourging of Jesus, we are well beyond the brutality of the cross to the degree that we cannot even picture it, even if we see the Mel Gibson movie. He probably does no justice to what the brutality of the cross was. One can't forget that the cross was not set up high, but was set low, and that the people walking by would berate the people that were on the cross. The humiliation that went with us, more than likely he was naked on the cross. We are well beyond the empty tomb. We certainly can't imagine the gift that Mary was given at the empty tomb when she thinks it's a gardener and he says her name. I cannot even imagine the emotions that went through her at that moment. The one who just a few days prior, she had anointed with this perfumed oil. The one that she had given herself to in devoted worship. We sometimes feel or seem or truly are far distant from these events that occurred so long ago. Yet those events are just as real now as they were then. Those events are just as important now as they were then. Those events then are the things that keep us from the curse. Whereas we can be like Paul and we can depart to be with our Savior and not die and go to hell because of our sins. I took this from Owen Strand. He wrote this this week. We can be tempted tempted to despair and resignation, but we need to remember some key truths. We are owed nothing. Everything that we have is a gift. And God has given us much in this life. And He has given to all of us who believe eternity with Him in Jesus Christ. And God is so gracious in doing that. Nothing we could do to earn it. Everything for His glory. I want you to think back to those who were here last week. Remember what I said that in those ancient Roman catacombs, the buried Christians that were there, the most common symbol that they have, And their burial spot, was the anchor. Not a cross, not a fish, but an anchor. Because Jesus is the anchor of our soul, the one that penetrates into the holy place and anchors us firmly with Him, with God. That no grave can hold Him, the one who died for our sins and rose again. The one who secured our eternity by taking upon an eternity's worth of wrath. For us. You see, Jesus is our only hope. And then knowing that, our acts before Him should be unrestrained worship to Him. Our joy comes from obedience to God. Our joy comes from proper worship of God. Our joylessness comes from disobedience to Him. We see the obedient nature of Mary before a righteous and a holy Jesus, the one who would go to the cross for all who believe. And we need to consider that. We need to consider that when we come to worship on Sundays. We need to consider this as God's word to us, as God's instructions for us. And we need to take it seriously, not of being fed, although we do get fed here, but that we are here to give worship to God. When we sing, those songs go up before him as right worship before him. Our prayers go up before him. Our repentance goes up before him. Let's pray. Glory and heavenly Father, thank you for this day and thank you for the, it looks like an absolutely beautiful day that's going to be. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the memorial of Mary and her actions on that day. Let us consider that as we worship you, God, that as we give our whole to you, God, as best we can in our sinful self, that you might bend us and break us so that we.